some days when I was homeschooling, I really have to admit that I wondered if all the pieces were working together well enough to create a coherent education for my daughter. It was a real struggle for me being a very distractible person to begin with. Today, we're talking to Jessica Tomey about the importance of consistency and how a Charlotte Mason education can bless your family in a big way. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. I'm Lisa Maladnik. Welcome to the show. Today's guest, author Jessica Tomey, is going to explain the importance of consistency in a Catholic homeschool, and specifically, how Charlotte Mason's methods provide the daily disciplines and habits to achieve your long-term vision for your children's education. Jessica Tomey is a really neat person. She's a convert to the Catholic faith whose story was recently aired on The Journey Home with Marcus Grodi. She's a wife and mom and the author of Home in the Church, Living an Embodied Catholic Faith. She holds a master's degree in journalism and a PhD in communications. She also serves as an online adjunct professor of communications at Liberty University. Jessica blogs at jessicatomey.com and contributes regularly to catholicmom.com and joyandtruth.com on topics relevant to living an intentional life of faith, communication, and education. Jessica is the creator and co-host with her husband, Mike, of the Catholic Reading Challenge podcast. I've listened in, and it's fantastic, which you can find out more about at her website, jessicatomey.com. And I'm going to spell that out for you because there's a capital P in there that's silent like prayer. Uh, it's Jessica, spelled the usual way, P as in Peter, T-O-M-E-Y.com. Jessica is also a passionate classical Charlotte Mason home educator and is thankful she gets to foster her wonder of the world alongside her children every day. Thanks be to God. So nice to have you with us, Jessica. Oh, Lisa, it is fantastic to be here. I'm just so excited to get to talk to you today. Oh, me too. I was just saying to Jessica before we started recording that I wish I'd known her before I started homeschooling because I'm <laughs> like the least consistent person I know. Oh my goodness. So, so just step us into kind of your discovery of Charlotte Mason. What, what was that like for you and, and why is this topic important? Sure. I um, Well, first of all, I'll tell you my kids' ages. You have kind of a sense of where I'm at in my homeschool journey. Great. Thank um, you. <laughs> yeah. So I've got an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a 19-month-old. And so we're going into third grade and first grade and then learning our letters. <laughs> so I'm only a few years in, but I would say that my discovery of how do I want to homeschool happened simultaneously to coming into the church to becoming Catholic. I grew up Protestant, and but my husband and I converted. We came into the church six years ago. It was six years ago this June. And um, to God, welcome home. Yes, definitely <laughs> home. Um, so we really were discovering what it meant to live as Catholics, to live liturgically, what the domestic church meant. We're discovering all of those things while we were kind of thinking we probably would start homeschooling. Mm. So I kind of knew right at the outset that I wanted my homeschool to be a very formational experience that was not at all disconnected from faith formation, right? Mm. So I had a sense that our homeschool was very much going to be Catholic, of course, but 
I had all these questions. Um, I was discovering what does it mean to be a human person, a person of faith, um, living in this world as a Catholic. And so I think a lot of the answers to those questions are also answers to how do we grow our children in a homeschool environment in the, to be Catholics in this world? And how do we educate with that end goal and that vision in mind? And they, so they really happen together. And um, I would say that I probably knew about Charlotte Mason. If you've ever heard about Charlotte Mason, you've probably heard a couple of buzzwords um, like mm-hmm. nature study or living books. Those are kind of two big ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some people have heard of the science of relations she talked about, or children are born whole persons. That's a, one of her main like 21 principles that she's known for. And that's like number one. Um, so I definitely had more of a surface level understanding that a lot of people um, do uh, of Charlotte Mason. So you might find people at different levels of depth, you know, so I'd heard kind of these buzzwords and certainly bought into them. I'm like, yes, living books, that sounds great. And being in nature a lot and all that. So, but I gradually learned, I gradually grew to read a little bit more and do, you know, doing a lot of reading and investigating and how do I want, um, to do, do homeschooling and discovered slowly a classical approach to education. So a book that I read in the last couple of years that is foundational. And if I could recommend one book that you read before, or right now, if you haven't read it, you, <laughs> before you start homeschooling is Stratford Caldecott and he's passed away, but it's his book, Beauty in the Word. Mm-hmm. And it is the book that tells you how to have a beautiful, like what a beautiful homeschooling education. It's not actually about homeschooling. It's about Catholic education. Like this, what it should look like. And it's so inspiring and beautiful. And he explains his in, not interpretation, but his view of the classical, if you will, um, division of stages of a classical education, the trivium, as it's called, the mm-hmm. grammar stage, logic stage, rhetoric stage. And he gives these beautiful words to it. Remembering is what he calls the grammar stage. Mm-hmm. Thinking is what he calls the logic stage. And speaking is what he calls the rhetoric stage. So mm-hmm. think, to me, it was such a, a beautiful way, exposure to what a, ca- a classical education was, that, that these different stages as a whole person we as whole people are at these different stages as we develop of what we're ready for. And these young children in the grammar stage, you know, through up until through like fifth grade, they're just sponges ready to be invested in, to just collect all of these memories that we've passed on, right? From generation to generation, all of the best parts of culture that we want them to absorb. That is what that stage is for. And then they move to that stage of being able to think about these things in a more dialectical way to really engage them themselves and make connections a bit more. Um, And then eventually that end goal when they move into that rhetoric stage is that they can share their own ideas. They now have interacted with the great ideas. They've been able to think about them and wrestle with them and consider them. And now they're ready to really add and to in my opinion, carry out in in a full intellectual wise way, their mission that we all have when we're confirmed in the church to be missionaries out to the world. Like they're intellectually and formationally developed as human beings, ready to go off and to be these amazing adults with these, um, with really these well-formed like intellects and habits. So to me, 
that was the vision that I sort of slowly have discovered over the last few years that I've just had full buy-in to. Mm. It's just beautiful too, because I'm noticing, you know, as a mom of a college age daughter, and we spent, you know, a decent amount of time looking at the school options, that the idea of a liberal arts education of a classical foundation for having knowledge, for synthesizing and being able to weigh and analyze and, and, and draw conclusions about information, and then to express it, to be a strong communicator, to be somebody can, who can then impact others with what they're learning, that that model really does produce people who then operate at a very high level professionally out there in the world and as human beings. They're real thinkers and they're people persons as well. They have a tendency not to be purely technical or purely about consumerism or the marketplace, but they can live into any piece of that culture with a very alive intellect, but also a heart and a soul as a human being. These things are incredibly deepening for us as we grow. Absolutely. That's the whole point. Yes, totally. Mm. Well, yeah. So for me, that was sort of in the last few years, in our, you know, as we just sort of dove into these early years of homeschooling, finding his book was very formational for me. But you find, actually, I'm sorry, did you find it the least bit intimidating? I know you've got all kinds of advanced degrees, but <laughs> you, know, you're, you, you impressed me. I'm not someone with, uh, with a lot of higher education. And so for a lot of us at different levels, like when you read Stratford Caldecott and you started to delve into Charlotte Mason and seeing these high ideals, and then you've got your little kids. You've got your little kids who are human beings yeah. and who have... Con- or however you say that big word, right? They're going to sin. And, and you're not always going to have a good day. Was it ever intimidating to you to, to, to just have this beautiful vision and begin to apply it to your life? Like, how do you step into that on a daily basis? What does that feel like? You, you just, <laughs> it, is absolutely, it is absolutely intimidating, right? Because they are these people. And you have this desire, especially if you're someone who's pretty organized and um, and a go a go getter and ready to just you know try out whatever you have a passion for. Um, you realize pretty quickly that you're going to make a lot of mistakes, and you just have to be okay with that and be um, and, and realize that you know to have some humility and don't be afraid to fail and don't go in with the assumption, which I'm sure I've done so many times that. I've got it this time. I just have the perfect solution. And this year's just going to be issue free. <laughs> and of course, at home at homeschooling, as we all know, is not at all like that. Um, but I do think that when we, when we give ourselves good resources, we have the opportunity to learn well and to make mistakes well, if that's, if that can be a thing, I think it should be a thing. And, um, <laughs> And to make mistakes well and learn from them and realize through trial and error what these beautiful principles look like in action. And they look different in every home. Like we can be going after the same thing, but the actual like flesh and blood on that, on that idea is different for every family and every family culture. And, and every parent has different personalities. Our kids have different personalities and my homeschool is going to have a different style, different aesthetic than another Catholic family's homeschool, right? And so don't make the mistake, I think. I think it's important to remember, don't make the mistake to look at someone else's homeschool, just like you could look at anyone's, someone else's whatever, and think that's the ideal. Mine has to look just like that. Um, These principles are principles because they apply in a wide range of contexts, you know? And I think um, I have to remind myself that, you know, on a regular basis, we all have to remind ourselves just, you know, 
to have humility and to realize that it's never going to be perfect. We're always going to be learning how to do a better job of these things. Um, but that, that, that's part of growing, you know, it's like, it's just mm-hmm. sort of a work in progress. We're a work in progress, just like our, our kids are. We're all people. I feel like that's a really profoundly positive lesson to give them too, that, that if we're people who are, let's see ourselves almost as intellectual toddlers, a toddler stands up and falls down and stands up and falls down and then finally becomes in a rather short order an expert on walking. This toddler never once at that first falling goes, oh, well, I guess I'm not good at walking. I'll try something right. else, right? right. So that just that that little bit at a time, that incremental, like you said, letting yourself kind of learn from the failures and and to to take one day at a time. And I've sometimes done a good job of that, and sometimes a very poor <laughs> job of that. And you know, then I have to come back and let go of my pride and realize where I've you know gone astray. So it's, it's a work, you know. It's a it's a yeah, it's a work in progress. Um, but. Yeah. I would say, so with that foundation in mind, I started to, so I had been exposed to Charlotte Mason and actually in Caldecott's book, uh, In Beauty and the Word, he referenced a lot of different styles of education and different um, philosophies and different people's theorists ideas. And he references, Charlotte Mason is one of them that he references. And he has just wonderful things to say about um, her writings being, I think, a feast of wisdom, I think is how he puts it. So he's like, please dig into her writings yourself because in her home education series, she has it's six volumes. Um, and there's just so much, so much goodness. And I am slowly reading through them. I've only read through the first volume this last year with my Alita mom's, um, Charlotte Mason reading group. And we get together once a month. We actually get together every month, but every other month we do the reading circle. So we're reading through Charlotte Mason's works. Um, in order, and then we're alternating it with some other accompanying texts. We actually read Beauty and the Word together as a group. And then the alternate months, we get together and do just some mom culture stuff. Like we create together. Everybody brings something creative they're working on. And we have a topic of conversation while we all do our knitting or painting or whatever. And it's just lovely. Oh my um, goodness, that sounds fabulous. <laughs> I'll be right over. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. I wanted it. So I started. I said, who else wants to join me? See, that's what it takes. I just want to, I'm going to say this again and again throughout this podcast series that if you want something to happen, make it happen. God will help you. Absolutely. If it's a desire that you have, there's probably someone else who has that same desire in your immediate community. It's probably not just you. And not only will you bless yourself, but you'll bless someone else. So I totally, if it's not already there, like don't reinvent the wheel. If it's there, great. But if it's not, maybe you should just start it and you, you know, do something there. So in the last couple of years um, and through that reading circle, I've really been reading more of, um, of her writings and understanding, okay, it seems like, and I've also read other authors who have homeschooled with her methods all the way through. They've graduated their children. And um, Karen Glass is actually an author who comes to mind who's, who's done this. Um, but Cindy Rollins has also done it and some other well-known names in the homeschooling movement. And I started, as I was reading more about her methods and also other people who've used them, I began to see that these people, when consistently applying her methods, have had great success. And the long-term end game, they achieved. Mm. So I really, and I've also simultaneously noticed that there can be a lot of flailing about in homeschool circles, right? I mean, Mm. there's a lot of times where it seems like for some homeschool families, and we don't definitely 
we definitely help this with all the different stuff we have going on in different conventions and stuff, but it can be very easy to go year by year and just kind of do a different thing every year or the next new flashy thing that comes out. Well, we'll try this or, Oh, we didn't like that. We'll try, you know, and it can be easy before you know it. Um, you, you know, every year you kind of is different and you're not really, you don't really land anything. And then years go by and all of a sudden your kids in high school, right. And you're like, oh, I don't know what we're doing for high school. So I kind of knew I didn't, um, it, that's a journey. I mean, it's hard. Like it's hard to decipher things, but I knew in the early stages, I said, I really want to find some answers to questions about what is my education philosophy? What do I believe is like the important end game? And then build backwards, right? Mm-hmm. And say, how do I get there? And look at from at people's examples who have gone before me and see where consist where thing where where truth is pointing me, and where people have consistently applied Charlotte Mason principles. And I I just noticed um, it worked. Mm. And I and I just said if, if this works for these people, and if her writings are that compelling, and she ran schools for decades with these amazing results, then I'm not gonna like reinvent the wheel here or go with the next new thing, I really want to stick with this thing that has like stood over a century mm-hmm. um, and dig in a little bit deeper and find out. And the more I dig the slowly and incrementally, I would say each year I've just kind of gotten a little closer to being a little bit more faithful to her methods and just buying in a little bit deeper to really try to do it um, the way she did it. And I've just, I've noticed great success so far. So we're only going into third grade this year, but I've really seen some of the benefits for um and some of the the main the main concepts that she talked about in education was using narration right where we tell back what we know like we read a living book um and of course she gives great in her writings give great how to's of like how how to do this well because this can look a lot of different ways how to do it poorly how to do it well um (laughs) tell back what you know so so those sorts of things narration is really a fundamental one to her method of education but as I started to incrementally include um, consistency with narration, consistency with set, being out in nature and doing nature studies, consistency with picture studies, a variety of different subjects that she taught in her schools to children my age, I've seen such fruit. I mean, I, I just cannot even tell you my kids' vocabularies. And they have a long way to go. We have lots of ways we can grow. But I, even just in doing it at, at a level that I think is has been superficial until this year, I think we're at kind of a crossroads where this fall, I really am doing a lot of things um, more according to her methods than ever before. So we'll see how that goes this year. I have, I mean, I have um, hopeful expectations. I think it's going to be a beautiful year, but um, even, even just as I've done it so far, as I've implemented what I've learned, as I've learned it, I've seen such fruit. So it just makes me want to buy in more. Hmm. Tell us a little bit of something about like the idea of narration, obviously, which you've just stated so well, is to read something or to experience something. Maybe we went to the museum or whatever it is, and then have the child tell back to you. In other words, there are ways to ask questions. You said there are good ways and bad ways to guide right. a narration. So could you just tell us a little bit about what that's like? When are you, how are you drawing out your children into a narration that helps them to make those connections and synthesize and then create? stronger memories and stronger learning through that process. Yeah. So it starts with picking a good book, right? A lot of lessons are read through great in great books and very literary works. So that was one of the things that the way she defined a living book is um, 
written by a single author, maybe not a textbook that has some bland writing written by a, sort of a committee of people, but something that's living. So written by one author with a passion for the subject where it has literary value, literary language, and really comes alive. So that's sort of step one, picking that right text that's mm-hmm. going to come alive. Mm-hmm. A, little, a little bit of that is subjective, right? Some, you kind of know your child and you know where, what level that kid's at. And, and so there's a little bit of trial and error in picking good books and you get better at it over time. But you pick a good book, all right? There are lots of great lists out there. Pick a good book for the subject you're studying. You read it and then you let the child tell it back. Now, I have had through trial and error to realize it's wise to read a page and pause and let the child tell back that page or that episode. You read kind of, as Charlotte Mason says, read an episode, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of a nice natural break, place mm-hmm. to stop, let the child tell back in his or her own words what happened. And what um, kinds of author- questions do you ask in order to elicit that telling? So it's really a very simple version, and there could be a lot of versions of, tell me what we just read about, or tell me the story of Columbus that we were just reading, or there's a lot of different ways you can say that. What it's not is quizzing. So closed-ended quiz questions where you're trying to elicit some very specific answer that you want them to tell you. Why that doesn't work is the child knows he's being quizzed, right? Mm-hmm. And he therefore he knows there's a right answer and a wrong answer. And instead of being able to tell you what he knows because he has learned something in that reading. He does know something from it, whether or not he's paid, if he's paid full attention. And that's another part that you have to grow with. But he does know something. And if you are not creating an environment with questions that allows the child to tell what he knows, instead he's tell, looking for something that you're looking, like that answer that he thinks you're looking for, then you kind of miss that opportunity. For him to narrate something that really is fresh and there and ripe for the picking. And he's missed the opportunity to put it back in his own words. And that act of putting it back in his own words is what actually helps him possess that knowledge. Mm. It goes from just being in that book to being digested by the mind. All right. She always, Charlotte Mason did a good job of, of, um, uh, of using the metaphor of food, like as food is for the body, knowledge is for the mind or ideas mm-hmm. are for the mind. Yeah, and the way so, our brains work too, it's that whole, it's almost like following the, the trivium of getting the knowledge and then mm-hmm. synthesizing it, thinking about it, and then expressing it. And so the narration exactly. actually takes you through all the all three of those. Exactly, exactly. And it's it's so simple that I think people, it's hard to buy in. Initially, I really had this impulse to not let any space, any silence happen. Like if I asked my child, okay, tell me the story. And there was a pause. I would want to like fill the space, like give him clues. Like what, what about this? But a child, you're actually interrupting the child sitting and thinking about it and saying, okay, what did I just hear about? So you have to, it, it's actually counterintuitive. It takes some time to really realize, no, this is a simple idea. Let it work and don't interrupt it. And a lot of times in, in our homeschools, I think we can, all parents, if we're honest, Sometimes we get in the way of education more than we realize. We just think we want to preach on that point we just read and give a little sermon. And, and then we just mess it all up, right? We just fuck <laughs> it all up because instead of letting that beautiful living book speak for itself, we feel like we just need to add. Now, did you get that point, children? Did we 
Do we understand what we should take away from here? And I think we just, Charlotte Mason would say that we just kind of devalue our kids as whole persons. Like they are developing, they're people who are able to think about great ideas and feast on them. And we are not the experts on like what they should know. And I mean, we're guiding them, but we're letting them discover. There's a lot about if we don't let them discover things they're on their own, they're not going to retain it. Like if we're just trying to spoon feed them, that's kind of what the principle of narration is. That I that kind of old fashioned idea of here's what you need to know for a quiz or a test, right? Um, just spit this back out to me. Well, no one's keeping that in their long term memory. So I think narration really gets us to the point of learning over these growing up years how to make knowledge and ideas our own and how to really possess them and then be able to work with them and and compare them and um, and really let them come alive in our minds and interact with them. So it's this beautiful process that is actually pretty simple. It, it sounds too simple to be true, right? But I think it, 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 it works, you know? Yeah, like so many profound things. It takes humility to let it live, to sort of yeah. not squeeze the life out of it, to, as you're saying, to you're making very intentional choices and you're being consistent and self-disciplined about showing up every day with the yeah. vision in mind, with the long game in mind. Yeah. And yet there's this other thing. It's, and that's one thing I like about how it dovetails so nicely with teaching them our faith too, because there's this grasping of the faith, but there's this also sense of letting go and letting ourselves kind of fall into God's arms, letting him do the rest. Absolutely. And like, just to reiterate the point of consistency here with something like narration, like the method of narration, um, Karen Glass in her book, um, The Art of Narration, great book great, great book. Um, she tells how, she says how no single narration is like the end all be all, but it's the consistency of one narration every day of the school year. And it builds and oral, and then oral narrations are mastered. And then children move on to being able to um, do written narrations. And both of those things build on each other until all of a sudden in the rhetoric stage, Kids are creating compositions quite naturally with advanced vocabulary. And they never really needed to be taught how to write a paragraph because they had spent their entire school years every single day reiterating beautiful, well-ordered language, either orally or through writing. And it just naturally became part of their own communication. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a, her book is fantastic because she really um, gives so many examples of um, specific examples of oral narrations and written narrations from a lot of families. She collects them and gives you examples. And it's very inspiring. It shows you, I can do this. Like mm -hmm. this, not only can I do it, but it works. This, this works. This takes my kids. So it's this idea of no one, no one of these things is like the end all be all. No one, you know, school day, one lesson is like, it, it's, it's okay if we get some poor narrations or some poor, that's not the point. It's a point that we're seeking to apply these methods consistently every day for the whole school year. And that adds up to a lot. I actually, one of my favorite quotes that just always inspires me um, almost on a daily basis is um, by Julia Carney. She says, little drops of water, little grains of sand make the mighty oceans and the beautiful land. And to me, that is exactly what Charlotte Mason's methods do. It's this 
daily little drop of water in the bucket, little drop of sand, and all of this, you know, all of a sudden one day you wake up and you realize we we built this 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 beautiful education here. Like this has come along and this is just this this very amazing thing, this homeschool environment. So I really truly believe that consistency is the answer. We don't need to be um, concerned that every day goes perfectly, right? We don't need to become these perfectionists. We just need to consistently apply our best knowledge of how, how to apply these principles and methods well. And over time, they really do add up to a lot. Mm-hmm. And I feel like also something that our whole society is really losing out on these days because of its constant attraction to screens and, and messaging and, and, and all sorts of sales uh, intrusions on our lives on our lives, uh, is yeah. that we, with this procedure of, of giving the child space to reflect, you create a reflective mind. You create a mind that doesn't simply uh, regurgitate a knee-jerk response, but reflects. And that, yeah. and that too, wow, before the Blessed Sacrament, with the rosary, with scripture, there are so many ways that it, it just dovetails so beautifully into a life of faith as well. Oh, man, yes. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it is. It really does. It really does add up to a lot. And um, so it, on, like on that note, it doesn't happen overnight. It is a gradual building and like it requires patience. And I think you're not going to see this with, with these methods. You're not necessarily going to see this instant the return on investment, right? Mm-hmm. You wonder for a few weeks, is anything getting through? Are these kids mm-hmm. retaining information? And then all of a sudden, one day, your kid sits down and writes something mm-hmm. or goes up to a grandparent and says, would you like to hear this poem that I've memorized? And you're like, and you don't even know what the kid's talking about, right? <laughs> like, it mm-hmm. might be a poem that you had been reading and re- reciting together out loud, or it might be something you just read, whatever. These mm-hmm. things happen where you realize, oh, this is working. This is all coming together. So it, this idea that it doesn't happen overnight, it is gradual, having patience with it. But I will say, and I think a point that, um, I think Stratford Caldecott got, kind of gives us some wisdom on this point too. It, you can't make up time at the end. I'm a big believer in that too. Um, I think it's important to invest in our children's education because it matters. If it didn't matter, we wouldn't be asking these questions, right? So there, it, we don't need to be overstressed, but at the same time we do, I think, what's what's the right, you know, the right balance there to have this um, understanding that this is an important thing that we've been given, that we've been entrusted with, right? Invest mm-hmm. um, in our kids' education and we're, we of course, we have this desire to do a good job with it. So it does matter, right? Mm-hmm. It does having a philosophy of education that is true and good and will get us to that end goal does matter. So where we start and what perspective and vision we start with does matter. And we can't just make up time at the end. Those, those little building blocks, as we've seen, do add up to a lot. So if we miss a great deal of them, um, we do miss out on something. And so I think there's a balance of not beating ourselves up, but also understanding that principle. And on, I think it's page 119. I want, I, I would love to just read this. Um, he quotes Stratford Caldecott and Beauty of the Word is quoting um, John Senior, another author. 
And he says this, he says, though a supporter of the great books approach, he, John Sr., has found that most students simply don't have the prerequisites such as such an education supposes. They have not exercised and purified their imaginations in the thousand good books that children and adolescents used to read before they tried the great ones. So what he's saying here is we can all acclaim these new high school um, high schools that are popping up, which is great in Catholic circles of classical approaches, great book programs. We see these wonderful colleges. Now we have all these options that have wonderful, great book programs. But what he's also challenging us with is these are wonderful, but have our kids been prepared to be ready for them? Have they been given the feast of children's literature and young adult literature, the classics that children used to read growing up, right? Um, have they been prepared to think this way? And I think for me, that is what a Charlotte Mason a properly and also a properly conceived of classical education really does for a child. So we can't, we can't just assume that, oh, this is great. Let's get them to this college. Well, don't we want to prepare them? to be able to get the most they can out of that college experience. We don't want to be making time up at the end or trying to, which I don't think we can do very well. We don't, we don't want to be putting band-aids on, um, you know, my kid can't write very well and he's in 12th grade and, and, you know, and let's just make, make this, this rush to make up time to end. I don't think we have to live that way. I think we can start um, with great methods, start with a good philosophy of education and build these things slowly in a really peaceful, non-intense way in our home schools. And we can, we can get them ready for this. We can get them prepared, more prepared than we were. For those of us who are overwhelmed and saying, I did not grow up with this kind of education. I'm intimidated by great books. I myself can, can even you know, read a book and it's, it's hard for me to stick with these things. We actually, it's okay. We can, we can help prepare our kids to do that. There's so many tools now. Um, and I think we want that for our children, right? I think a lot of people home educating who didn't have that education wish they did, right? And oh, so I sure do. <laughs> I know, we, can get, we can get our kids there, I think. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really worthy goal to realize, hey, we have this vision in mind. What will it take to get them there and get them prepared well? And so that, I think, for myself is a motivating question that has forced me to ask, what, what is my philosophy of education? And I think it's a great practice for homeschool families starting off, you know, in those early years, those early grammar years to ask, okay, what does this mean? What are we going for here in our family? um, What is the end goal of education? Why does children learn? Why do children learn? And I think Charlotte Mason has some perfect questions to ask in forming in, in giving our, in letting ourselves form um, our idea, our philosophy of education. Um, And these are the questions that she tells us we need to ask ourselves seriously as either home educating mothers or fathers. And they're these, why must the children learn at all? Sorry, my bookmark is in the way of the word. <laughs> why, must, why must the children learn at all? Two, what should they learn? And three, how should they learn it? Those are very simple questions, but they're very profound. The answers to those questions that gives us our philosophy education right there. That, mm-hmm. that helps us cipher out what method is really going to help get us to the end goal. What should they be reading at all, right? What should they be learning at all? So those questions, and I'll read them one more time. Why must the children learn at all? What should they learn? 
and how should they learn it? And that's on page 171 of her first book in her home education series, and it's called Home Education. So I think it's a, she offers us a great starting point too, to really think of, well, what, what am I doing to begin with? And a lot of us can, it's easy to jump in without asking ourselves these questions. But I think, I mean, you, I'm sure you can attest to, I'm sure every homeschool parent who, who's done this for any amount of time says, at some point you get to, you bump up into that wall of what are we doing here? You know, especially in those times where it's a little crazy and things, things aren't going well. And, you know, you're interrupted by all kinds of um, needs from toddlers and babies or just life in general and whatever. I think it's really helpful to have, to have that point to come back to. This is what we're going for. This is our philosophy of education. And this is then what I can come back to when that new flashy thing comes out, that new curriculum or this new, whatever it is, we can say, okay, let's, let's, let's assess this. This might be a tool that we could use, right? Um, and say, okay, is this fitting in with what we know our children need to learn? What, how they need to learn it? Why they need to learn it all? And it really helps us to know what to take, take and use and what to reject and say, you know, that's just not for us. That's not going to get us to our end goal. Um, so that has been huge, hugely fundamental for me mm-hmm. uh, in sort of in building my own philosophy of education. Mm, fantastic. I feel like the you've made some such some clear, really important takeaways around having a philosophy of education, right? Um, why, why do they need to learn and what do they need to learn and how are they going to learn it? Uh, coming to a real philosophy, being consistent in the application of that philosophy, being patient, developing that ability for our children to reflect and, uh, and keeping, keeping a, a vision for the long game. It's almost like the way we look to heaven for everything. This has okay. been so edifying, Jessica. Thank you so much. I feel like we could do a whole series on this, but I'm looking forward to someday having you back just to give us a progress report on how it's all the place. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be so fun. Right? To reflect on where you are now with your young children and and your fantastic book group and just let us know how it's going and you're developing your community and that support that we all need as moms on the journey. Thank you so, so much for being with us today, Jessica. Oh, my pleasure, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about your show. Oh, thank you. And do check out Jessica's and her husband's wonderful podcast as well. That's the Catholic Reading Challenge. And go to her website. It's jessicatomey.com. It's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-P is in Peter, T-O-M-E-Y.com. And please stay tuned for our short feature. God bless you. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Dan Zonas from EinsteinBlueprint.com. Today, I want to talk about the connection, the intimate connection between entrepreneurship and homeschooling. You see, as a child acceleration specialist, I spend a lot of my consulting time these days trying to convince entrepreneurs, trying to convince very successful business owners to pull their kids outside of the system and homeschool them. And I also spend a whole lot of my time trying to convince homeschooling parents, moms and dads, and even the teenage kids themselves, that they should, in addition to hyper-accelerating their kids academically and morally and socially, that they should also set out to transform their little kids into hustling and grinding entrepreneurs. You see, there is this huge natural overlap between entrepreneurship and homeschooling. First of all, both spaces are characterized by extreme amounts of freedom. 
the self-directed, self-propelled entrepreneur can jump into any industry or any market that he or she wants at any time, almost on a whim. And the homeschooling family, well, they can study any subject or engage in any extracurricular activity that they want as well. Secondly, both entrepreneurship and homeschooling feature unlimited upside. The wealthiest people on earth throughout history got that way by working for themselves. They weren't punching a clock. They weren't collecting a salary, at least not for very long. No, they achieved their successes by courageously starting their very own businesses. By the same token, today the smartest, most well-rounded kids and highest achieving kids are homeschooled. Not only are our school-skipping kids dominating spelling bees, debate tournaments, and the entire youth chess scene, they are also cleaning up in Hollywood, on Broadway, and yes, they are quietly dominating the world of youth entrepreneurship. Lastly, both homeschoolers and entrepreneurs reside at the leading edge, at the very frontier of what's working right now. Of course, today we are truly blessed by the information age, revolutions in technology, these sci-fi revolutions that have democratized knowledge, that have lubricated instantaneous worldwide communication, and that have cheapened the tools of production. While all of humanity is certainly benefiting from this progress, however, it's really only the entrepreneurs and homeschoolers who have the time and flexibility to take full advantage of it. To quickly recap, entrepreneurship and homeschooling both promise a massive amount of freedom. They both feature an unlimited upside for success, and they both constitute new paradigms that are guaranteed to set your kids up to thrive in this dynamic global economy. If you want more information on how you can turn your kids into fledgling little upstart entrepreneurs, go to my 14-year-old homeschooled son's website, kidsgetrich.com. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you and thank you for joining us.